Welcome every back, uh, everyone back to the 27th episode of the Dunkin' with Don podcast. I'm your host once again, Donna Chapone, uh, joined again by uh, a fourth, a returning guest for the very, uh, the fourth time, I believe, on this pod. So that actually might be the uh, the leader for most returning guest appearances. Uh, but Micah, welcome back to the pod for a fourth time. Thank you, Don, for having me. I am really excited to be here from all the way across the country, be it over Zoom at this point. I... I'm excited to talk some NBA playoffs because just about a week in, they have been every bit as crazy as you and I both anticipated they would be. So here we are, and let's get into it. Yeah, obviously, uh, obviously have you on a lot just because you do know all your NBA stuff, and it really is. You're definitely one of the best experts that not only have been on the pod, but also just in general. Uh, I want to start with this Lakers-Suns series because I think – I've always been not only a fan of the series, but I've been on the bandwagon that, at least for me, whoever wins this series is two of my favorites to win the title this year. Just because I love both teams. I love their all-aroundness, their versatility and all that. And it's been an interesting up-and-down series with all of the injuries, with all of this back and forth. You know, the teams aren't scoring 130 points as I thought. This is this kind of reminds me of like a 2010s, like... Uh, old school game, kind of like Heat Pacer, something along those lines, where it's just a bloodbath every game. Yeah, early 2010s seems like it. I could also go back to maybe even a late 80s to early 90s, where it's kind of a thing of the past to shoot more twos than threes and more rely heavily on picking up points that way. But the Lakers have shot the ball horridly, from three, even if they are open, which is within four feet from a primary defender or wide open looks, be it six feet from a primary defender, the Lakers are shooting below 33% in both of those aspects on those looks. So the series is tied 2-2 now. And one of the greatest, I think, plot lines of the entire playoffs has been the injury to Chris Paul, which then flip-flopped yesterday into the injury for Anthony Davis, which he still has not missed a playoff game in his career, although this is a guy who has been plagued by down on the floor and agony, walking gingerly, all of these other statements that are used about a guy who is kind of a frail-bodied guy. Although, I will say this, even if Davis does not play... It's been a long time since we have seen LeBron James actually in a pressure playoff situation like this. Because last season, the only time that the Lakers lost a second game in a series would have been to your Miami Heat in the finals. But as you can see, there was a difference in that series. Jimmy Butler was bent over at the scorer's table completely out of breath versus this Suns team. We we, we also had a team that year. We also had a team that year, so that matters. (laughs) That was for sure, yeah, much of a difference. But that would have been a team that was probably at the end of the line when it comes to ability to create shots and get to their different spots. The Suns look really hungry, and so far this series, they have been able to slow down a lot of the different actions that the Lakers throw at them. But the Lakers have been doing a lot of the same. It's been a really low-scoring and bloodbath kind of series to your point earlier. What do you expect to see in Game 5, and what have you seen so far? 
Well, so as you bring up, the the defensive-mindedness of both teams has been insane. In both of Phoenix's wins, LA was held to under not only 100 points, but basically almost 90. One game was they had 90 points, the other game they had 92A. B, you bring up a good point where the Lakers are, outside of LeBron and Anthony Davis, just not scoring. Um, draw, or Dennis Schroeder's averaging basically almost 17 points for them. But after that, your leading scores are uh, Drummond, Caruso, Marcus All. If those are your three next scores after LeBron, AD, and Dennis Schroeder, I think you have a little bit of a problem there. Um, a couple of things that stood out to me from this series. Um, Anthony Davis is scoring 22 points, but shooting only 40% from the field. I... It seems weird because you think he's actually doing a little bit better because especially he had that really good game too. I thought he's – it's one of those weird things where he didn't, he's actually like not doing that great compared to Anthony Davis' normal standards. Uh, credit to DeAndre Aiden and credit to the Phoenix Suns' defensive system for how they organized that. Uh, Chris Paul's only playing 30 minutes this series. He's barely cracking the 30-minute mark. He's at 29 and a half minutes. So obviously I want to see if he can improve because he played really well this past game. It's He's the winner of the stats don't tell the whole story, but he really did have a good game. Overall from this series, I think the what's sticking out to me is that for the Lakers, outside of LeBron and Anthony Davis – uh, LA is making everybody, or uh, Phoenix is making everybody score on that team. They're making KCP take any shot he wants. They want Caruso dribbling the ball. They're doing all sorts of trapping at the top of the key with LeBron. LeBron, you could tell, looks 90% healthy. I still think he's not 100% from that ankle injury. He's just not attacking the basket as much as he used to in the playoffs. And you bring it up, obviously, I think the last time LeBron's been in a pressure situation has to be that 2016. Uh, game seven against Golden State because even like those series against Golden State in 2017-2018 or I guess you can bring up the uh, Celtics here that game seven they played so I guess maybe that's a good moment but other than, yeah but other than that though yeah but other than that though it's been years since he's been in a pressure situation so in terms of game five I think the key here is that LA's got to Dennis Schroeder's got to get going for sure because they can't have two guys scoring offense and I think if you're at a certain point you need to let Chris Paul kind of do what the Spurs did to Steve Nash in that uh, 06 and all those years, basically make Chris Paul a scorer because Chris Paul is comfortable with the ball in his hands, like giving to other people. There's like It's one of those things where Chris Paul's statue would look great, but I think that's what you kind of want to do. You kind of want Chris Paul scoring 40 points and just limiting everybody else as like weird as that kind of sounds. So, yes, obviously that is weird as it sounds, but we've seen – Essentially, the Jazz do the same thing to Jaw and the Grizzlies, which is just let Jaw cook and try and lock up everybody else. And we've seen that same strategy work. That's what the Blazers are trying to do with Nikola Jokic and trying to make him score 40 a game if it comes at a cost of him only having two assists in the entire game. So that's a strategy, obviously, that the Lakers can employ because the Lakers are still going to have the best player, if not the best two players on the court, for the remainder of this series. And I think history has shown, with LeBron specifically, he rises to the occasion more than almost anybody in the history of the game when it comes to his games 5, 6, and 7 playoff resume. I've always said with LeBron, you are not winning the series if the series is tied. That is still the ball in LeBron's court, and you're giving him two chances to win, or three chances, essentially, to win two of the next three games, which I think that the Lakers would do even without Anthony Davis, as crazy as that sounds. But there is something to be said for the Lakers are going to need other players to step up. For example, Kuzma, 
he is a guy that took major strides for this season, even in a role coming off the bench in terms of shot creation off the dribble, moving without the basketball, other ways of getting into a high pick and roll situation. The fourth best player on the Lakers this series has not been Andre Drummond. It has not been Marcus All. It hasn't been Kuzma, KCP, none of those guys. It's been Alex Caruso because of the defense that he's played on Devin Booker. Yes. Because if we're really talking just straight up matchups, outside of game one, Book has not been great as well. I mean, the Suns were able to pick up a win yesterday with him playing essentially in minutes in the deep 30s and him only scoring 17 points. So the Suns are winning basketball games by scoring about 100 points in the Lakers' losses. That's not necessarily something that's sustainable moving forward either, but the Lakers need to have other ways to get shots off. And even if that means Ben McLemore's playing more minutes because he's their best catch-and-shoot guy, well, that's probably what it means because their best five that they can put on a court if Anthony Davis is not playing to me would be LeBron, Dennis Schroeder, Marcus Gasol at the five because he's going to be able to space the floor and create driving lanes for those other two. Then KCP, he's another guy who's also with <laughs> with, with, so, that, with hesitancy. <laughs> yes, with hesitancy. If he is playing, he would have to be in that five. But I think you can't really put out a lineup with KCP, Dennis Schroeder, and Alex Caruso on the floor. So you're going to need another guy. Who knows? This might be, for the rest of the series, Markeith Morris time. We saw it for a lot in the in the bubble last year. And this, this time they're going to need other guys to be able to step up because the Suns are a bigger team than a lot of the teams that they faced in the Western Conference last year before they even got to the Heat in the finals. Mikhail Bridges, he's big, he's long, he can move. Same thing. They're getting cooked by DeAndre Ayton. He's averaging, I think, 22 and 13. So yeah, it's like a 20 and 14 or something stupid. It's, it's and insane. And he's shooting 86% from the floor. <laughs> so without AD, it's obviously a tough task and the Suns probably will get a bump in terms of point spread and probably be favored. But I don't foresee the Suns actually winning this series because LeBron has never lost in the first round in his career. But I'm telling you, this is the first time that in a long time, LeBron actually has had pressure on him going into a playoff game, which is normally when he plays at his best. Yeah. And I've, I've had this, I've, I've put the the flags on two on both these fronts. First of all, I think this is the best series of the whole first round by far. Like even before any game, any tip off, I knew that this was going to be like a legendary. Like it's going to go up there as one of the best first round series up there with you know Jazz Nuggets last year with. All those times there's been Game 7s or even Game 6s for some of these first-rounders. I even like that last season, that Clippers-Mavs matchup, which we'll talk in a little yep. bit. And I've also said that I think, at the very minimum, whoever wins this series is a guaranteed Western Conference Finals berth. I'm not a huge Denver-Portland fan on either of their fronts. I, I've literally have not liked either team so far, even if they've you know like taken two games away from each other. And I even think there's a chance they could make the NBA Finals. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but I've not been a big fan 
of Utah so far, and I've I've still got questions for the Clippers, even though they've finally found out. I hope their groove for the rest of this first round series. Let's move on to uh, that Clippers Mavs series because obviously it's been that's even weirder. Where Luca goes absolutely insane for the first two games, Dallas is hitting every three pointer known to man. Even though the Kawhi and PG are both scoring pretty well, and then these last two games uh, on the road, the Clippers take uh, two games away from Dallas, and just like that, we have an even series going back to LA. What have been some of your thoughts from this series, and where do you think this is going to go forward? So, to your point on Dallas really shooting the lights out of the ball from three, through the first two games, they became the first team in NBA history to attempt at least 73s and make at least 50% of them as a team. (laughs) So, even outside of Luka hitting step backs, hitting floaters, getting whatever matchup he wants, be it Ivica Zubac, Serge Ibaka, Patrick Beverly, even switching Reggie Jackson and Rajon Rondo onto him, nothing was working. Then the major paradigm shift in this series was Ty Lue saying, you know what, we can't play bigs in this series. We're going to have to, you know, if Kristaps Porzingis can actually play like he's 7-3 and burn us, we're probably going to have to live with that because he is also a negative on the other end of the floor because he can't guard our small lineup. So or the, or their big lineup apparently can't cut anything. So <laughs> seriously, that has been another disappointment from this series. Even if he has hit some open threes, I will say though the Tim Hardaway Jr. factor to this is probably not sustainable. He's not a legit third star. I don't even. Do you, know you don't think he'll, you don't think he'll shoot fifty eight percent from three? You don't think so? <laughs> No, as a matter of fact, I don't. And I also don't know if I can really call KP a star at this point. So oh. it really is Luka versus the Clippers. And the Clippers decided to start playing Marcus Morris senior more. They have now allowed other guys, including Terrence Mann, to get more minutes off the bench. Even without the signing of Luke Kennard, who they threw money at this offseason for reasons I still don't know. He still has not played at all in this series, and they haven't needed it because Kawhi and PG have both been phenomenal the whole series. Kawhi is shooting 63% (laughs) on some of the most insane difficulty shots that you can think of because as good as Kawhi has been, the defense has actually played pretty well in terms of forcing him into tough looks. I've actually been pretty impressed with the way that Kleba has been able to move his feet and try to resist the blows that Kawhi is going to give you with his strength. So looking at the outlook of this series moving forward, I think this is going seven. I don't know if any home team can actually play like a home team. (coughs) And I think that the Mavericks are going to come out and win game five for as much flack as Luca has gotten. And really the entire Clippers roster. I think we see kind of a legendary style performance from Luca in game five and game seven is going to be back in LA as well. This series might even be better than the Lakers Suns series to me because it doesn't seem as though each team is trading blows 
like that Lakers Suns series, it feels like each team just has the other's number, and both of each team's strengths happen to be the other team's weakness. For example, Dallas, I know that in theory Dorian Finney Smith is supposed to be able to guard nope, Kawhi nope, and that's PG. not that's not happening. <laughs> that's not happening. Same with Hardaway. Same with even Porzingis, you'd think a seven foot three mobile big man, but quote unquote, it's been. You can't rough guard the tune. Yeah, well, you can't guard anything. You can't even guard the trash can, probably on the sidelines. I mean, so just to interrupt, like a couple of things that stood to me. So there's been a lot of weird stuff with this series. So first off, you bring it up. Kawhi shooting sixty three percent from the floor, which is absolutely insane, and. It's the winning formula this year for the Clippers. It, I knew that there was going to be some regression on Dallas's part because if Kawhi and PG are each scoring above 25 points on really good efficiency, Dallas is not going to make a gajillion three-pointers to counter that. At some point, like we saw last night, to go 5 of 31 from three. So I knew that was going to happen for sure. Um, I'm still panicking at Luka shooting 40% from the free throw line on 32 attempts. He's 13 for 32 from the free throw line this series, but he's shooting and making every goddamn three-pointer known to man, which is hilarious. Um, you bring it up. The, the, the winning formula, LA found it. It's Zubat in the limited minutes he was playing was a horrible negative. Um, them going small, whether it puts Terrace Mann out there, Serge Ibaka, Nicholas Batum, any of these small wings, Marcus Morris, and they're basically going to say, if Porzingis gets 30 points, it's going to be a miracle because he's not good enough anymore to do that because of all the injuries. Inconsistent three-point shooter, which is one of his best strengths. He's too soft around the rim, so he's just shooting these 18-foot, you know, leaning fadeaways instead of actually attacking the he's basket. He's a 7-foot-3 shooting guard. Yeah, no, he's a 7-foot-3 guy, you know, shooting three free throws a game because he's not attacking the basket. On defense, he's got the wingspan the shot blocking ability but basically they're running pick and roll and saying you're either going to go under the screen and we're going to drill a three-pointer face or we're going to draw a foul on you and of course outside of Luca, you're relying on you know Jalen Brunson throw it up at the end of the shot clock or Tim Hardaway Jr. clutch three-pointer there's no offense that's why I've always liked for this team them getting a second shot creator and this is the exact reason why because they're outside of Luca, who's been amazing keep in mind he's dropping a 33-8-8 with Great efficiency outside the free throw line and being guarded by arguably a top five defensive player in the entire league. And another guy in Paul George who's up there as like top 15, at least definitely up there with the top wing defenders. Plus a slew of other guys who at the very least won't kill you and like, you know, Batum and more. So at least like try and they're like big bodies. It's it's insane how this series has gone so far. And it's one of those where I don't know how to predict it because on the one hand, I could see this trend keep going where the Mavs can't stop Kawhi. Um, they go cold again from three. They're relying on Luka to score 45 points to just be in the series. But on the other hand, I could see Dallas catching fire and Kawhi coming back down to earth for one game because I don't think he's going to be shooting 63% of the field for the rest of the series. But then again, it's also Kawhi Leonard, who I have as one of the you know 30 best players of all time. So I don't know, I don't know what to go with this series. That's the crazy thing. So, yeah. And that's kind of what I came to in this series because I think that I have a better grip on what happens in Lakers Suns when the Lakers seem to have the Suns figured out at least on a defensive end and it's just all about them hitting some open looks from three it's not like that in this Dallas Mavericks and Los Angeles Clippers series where it's probably going to take close to 120 points in order to pull out any win because like I mentioned each team's strength is the other team's weakness I talked about the Clippers their ability to get whatever shot they want, wherever it is on the floor. With with the Mavericks, outside of game four, which I think 
the Clippers made the necessary adjustments. And it really came when they were staring their fate right in the mirror in game three, just pretty much down 30 to 11 right out of the gate. Then Luca comes out and he doesn't go back in until that lead goes from 19 to two. So looking at this game five and the rest of this series, I do expect Rick Carlisle to kind of counter the Clippers small ball lineup with maybe a more small ball lineup of his own. If you can play Maxi Kleba at the five and potentially even throw a lineup with him and Kali Stein out See, there. I, I was about to bring that up. I, I like Kali Stein more in this series because he's just an athlete. It's it just it's not even a matter of going small. It's just getting more fast guys out there who could just stay in front of Kawhi and PG. I, I really like uh, the Kali Stein uh, of substitution in there. So, yes, as I was saying, Kali Stein, you don't have to put him back in pick and roll because he's more mobile than Kristaps is at this point. He's going to give you at least enough rim gravity in terms of rolling to the basket for a lob threat as you need in order to free up Luka in any kind of high pick and roll action. And I think Jalen Brunson has got to play more minutes, to be honest. He needs to be, like, closer to about 16 points a game, even if you got to put him in there for 28-ish minutes. Because, to your point, the Dallas Mavericks don't have really a reliable secondary shot creator. We've talked about it going to the offseason, at least. Would, would a guy like Zach Levine, who would perfectly fit the mold of that team, be available Potentially, but that's not until the offseason, and Dallas has got to find a way to muster up two more victories here. I think this is going seven. I don't know who wins at this point. I had the Clippers in seven before the series even started, and it doesn't really make any sense to pick the road team if you think the series is going seven games. But I got to tell you, the way that home and road teams have played so far this postseason, which Road teams in the last, I believe, four days are still in the 60s in terms of percent of road wins. So if that trend continues, you know, I think that the Lakers and Mavericks feel pretty good about their chances. Yeah, this series has taught me a lot of things. So first off, it's showed me that Luka's got potential to be like that next big franchise icon like for the NBA like what he's doing this series it's up there in terms of like production in terms of what he's going up against all that sort of stuff and it's really started to me a good amount second off I've got I I know that we might be trending a little bit toward liking the Clippers just because of recent play I'm still not a fan of them I don't know what their identity is I don't know what their closing five is uh Kawhi playing 40 minutes for this series so far on average is scaring the hell out of me because this is what happened last year where he burned out and you could tell toward the end of that Nuggets series last year where he's, like, shortening every jump shot and is slow on defense and all. And I'm still I'm still not a huge fan of this team. I don't think they're going to win the title and even make the NBA Finals just because I've got – I think Reggie Jackson can't be taking the third more, most shots in this series outside of Kawhi and PG. Um, they can't be playing all of these random lineups. Like, there was moments where the one that I've heard recently is, like, Terrace Mann didn't play a lick of minutes in Game 1 and the first half of Game 2 – and then he played damn near the entire second half of game two. And then a good amount of game three. The fact that they're doing this now, they don't even know, like, what are the best combinations of a team. And they look, they don't have that, 
determination out there. It seems like they're a little bit scared almost. And that's why I, I'm not a huge fan of this Clippers team uh, as a title contender. I just think it's like, well, as you bring up earlier, there's all these teams with questions that haven't been solved yet. I'm still, I'm still waiting for the Clippers to figure out what the hell they are. So, yes, I talked about that after their game two loss. Is It's really a identity crisis. I was naming some of just the one-sentence synopsis to sum up each team in the Western Conference, and I came upon the Clippers, and I was struggling to really add anything besides Kawhi and PG must be hitting their shots because, to me, that's really the difference between this series and the last year's late uh, Clippers versus Mavericks series is PG has actually played like a borderline, if not total superstar to start this series. And if he continues that way, they have a great shot of winning, but I do think Dallas will come back in game five and essentially play their hearts out on the road, which is what every team has done to start this series. There's really no way of predicting what happens here because there is still the looming threat of a Paul George no-show, which will probably come at some point, uh, even if it's not the entire game, probably for stretches at the end of this series. And I got to tell you, I still like the Mavericks' chances, even if it goes seven games. But really, the deciding factor in the remainder of this series is which player will come out as the best player in the series because it's been Luka or it's been Kawhi, much like it was last season. But Luka has got to hit free throws. You can't be shooting 40%. Yeah, 40% from the free throw line. We'll take that from three. That would be awesome from three. (laughs) But that's not where he needs to be. Obviously, he's a guy who shot close to 75% from the free throw line this season. That's really the most direct way to evaluate a shooter is how they shoot at the free throw line and I will say the Mavericks are going to need other ways to shot create but I trust Luka that he will be able to get whatever matchup he wants whenever he wants it and this series I expect to continue to be a bloodbath yeah obviously we'll check out how the rest of this series plays I think they play what tomorrow it's either tomorrow or the day after, but obviously, close series, definitely one of the favorites for this first round. Uh, let's move on to the last of the tied series, uh, and that's the, the uh, Nuggets-Blazers matchup, which is the winner of the all-offense, no-defense title for this season, because holy hell, nobody can play a lick of defense here, and it's also just this weird thing. I mean, Portland is running, you know, f- seven guys total, because they don't have a bench. Yep. Um, Denver's running a five-point guard committee because they don't have a point guard, and Jamal Murray's out. Jokic is averaging three assists for this series after he just averaged, you know, almost 10 and was the best passing big man. Um, Dame and CJ kind of started off slow, and they're finally starting to pick it up here. Um, What have been your thoughts for this series so far? Because I am still – it's just been a back and forth, I don't know what to do here, what is going on, why are they playing these guys, all this sort of stuff. So, yes, to your point, this is the all-offense, no-defense series for people who love to see what the modern game supposedly is, even though that's not the case. But the real story is, if Aaron Gordon can play the style of defense that he played on Damian Lillard, even in their Game 4 loss, when the Nuggets 
seemingly just threw in the towel after five terrible defensive possessions early in the first quarter. I think that they can still win this series without Jamal Murray because Austin Rivers looks like more than just a sixth man of the year candidate who's just like an irrational flamethrower that comes off the bench and is just bang, bang, bang every time. He moved into that starting role in game four, which I think is a formula that can work moving forward because he's already built some kind of insane chemistry with Nikola Jokic in terms of working off the ball, backdoor cuts, screen away, high flare or pin down. So that's kind of a formula that I've seen from the Nuggets. But really the question here is how are the Nuggets going to be able to guard Damian Lillard? Because I think playing the Portland Trailblazers to where you're taking away Dame or at least shading him a half court, forcing the ball out of his hands, is still the right formula. Even if they have guys like C.J. McCollum, Norman Powell, Robert Covington, to an extent, hitting shots, that still gives you a better chance to win this series than letting Dame get the switch on Jokic, who has to come out further than he wants to from the basket to be able to move and defend in space. That is the death wish for the Denver Nuggets because I don't think Portland can really do anything to guard Nikola on the other sideline. And even him working out of the short roll or in the half-court set bodes well for Denver this series to me is still probably the Blazers in six because I think that Dame is going to go crazy. But man, I got to tell you, I expected a lot from this series in terms of offense. It's been exactly what I expected in that regard, but just the ways in terms of each team is getting whatever they want. I did not expect it to that extent. So here are Denver's nine guys that they're playing uh, in the rotation right now. So it's Nikola Jokic who's taking about, or I guess this is the shot distribution. You can see the Denver's problem here and their diagnosis for why they're not doing well this series. Jokic has taken 89 shots so far in four games. Pretty good. Actually, I think probably up there in terms of the most by the bigger superstars in any playoff series so far in the first round. Michael Porter, 48 shots. Gordon, 41. Monte Morris, 38. Uh, Campazzo, 33. Rivers, 30, Marcus Howard, 23 shots, and then Paul Millsap and Jermichael Green with 22 each. You can see the diagnosis of not having Jamal Murray this series. Outside of Jokic, every person is taking about the same number of shots. It's almost this, you know, equilibrium offense type thing. And I don't know what's the weird thing. Uh, Denver winning two games without a second scorer almost because Michael Porter Jr., for better or worse, is just way too inconsistent. Or the Blazers struggling to not make this series go by faster. They have a way better team. They're, the Nuggets kryptonite, which is guarding elite shooting point guards. Portland's got two of them. And they've also got some heat check guys like Norman Powell and all that. Um, why has Portland not been able to win? Uh, be up 3-1 at least? You would think that with these advantages, you know, they would do a little bit better because I've said this before. I mean, we brought this up, but whoever wins that Phoenix LA matchup, if you got to face Portland the second round, that's a cakewalk to the conference finals. I, this Portland team is really not that good. No, they are the Portland team that we've seen over the last couple of years where it's Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum who offensively are great, but 
Portland really can't stop anybody at the point of attack. And if Denver had another way to get to the basket, besides just Jokic battling and bruising people in the high post, they would be comfortably ahead 3-1 in this series. Their ability to get whatever they shot whatever shot they want whenever Jokic has the ball is great, and I think that's enough to propel them past Portland in this series. I still have Portland winning the series, and I expect Jokic to continue to dominate, but I think that whoever wins this series will be a heavy underdog against whoever wins the Lakers-Suns series, because unlike either of these two teams, both the Lakers and Suns both play defense as well as offense and can guard any kind of an attack from Denver or Portland. So I think that this series is kind of just a battle to lose in the second round, but I've seen a lot of, a lot great offensively from both teams but really nothing has stood out in terms of their ability to shut down the other team's best. And whichever team plays to the better of their abilities in these final three games, obviously as cliche as that sounds, should win this series because just like the Clippers and Mavs, I think that both teams' strengths happen to be the other team's weakness. Well, yeah, definitely for sure. So... I think the other thing for Denver also is it's not even a matter of they don't have any offensive jolt. They just don't have guys who can do anything in terms of creation. Like you're looking at it right now, Austin Rivers might be their third best, probably second best ball handler. If you have to do it between Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon in terms of actually just dribbling the ball and, you know, running a pick and roll. If that's and your, Monte Morris. Yeah. yeah, the fact that you have to make an argument for that, that that might be the case, is a problem for your team. And, I mean, we bring it up earlier, it's been imperfect just because from a numbers basis it looks terrible. But I feel like Portland's also doing the right thing. I think they're basically saying, Jokic, you're going to score 40 points no matter what you do. Like, just because you are so damn good, you're the MVP probably this year if nothing goes totally uh, wrong. And yet they're going to be like, Compazzo, you're going to shoot eight times a game. Like, you, you, you here, we, the runway's open, please take this three-pointer. Um, Marcus Howard, we didn't even know you were playing minutes now, and now you're playing 20 minutes a night. Please, be my guest. You've never been in a playoff series before. Have all fun. Oh, Paul Millsap, you haven't retired yet? Oh, well, come out of retirement, hit some open threes. That's what they're literally yeah. doing, though. They're, they're basically making everyone, Sands Jokic, do stuff on offense. And that's the problem. You can see even with Jokic scoring as efficiently as you possibly can. I mean, he's averaging 31 points from the series. He's shooting 54, 46, 90 from the field, and there's nothing they can do about it. That's insane. Your best player is shooting over 50, 40, 90 splits, and you're still in games where you're losing by 20 points. It shows you Denver's limitations. I think, obviously, getting Murray in this series would help a lot. So I've got an interesting question for you. Obviously, I know playoffs doesn't affect it as much, uh, if Denver loses the next two games and the Bucks make the, let's say, conference finals, do you think Giannis steals the MVP here? Or do you think this is one of those, like, Jokic has it in the wrap? Because I know, I know people tend to not do this, but I think there is still that bias where people try to put some of the playoff stuff and influence the regular season decision. So I just want to hear your opinion on that. Do you think uh, Giannis has a dark horse case here, or am I just uh, shooting for the stars here? You know, I know that they have done it this way in the past, but I'm pretty sure that ballots are already due. So I don't think that there is anything that can be swung in terms of the voters. However, I mean, I've seen lots of tweets coming from people who watch 
Jazz Grizzlies, who we're about to get to in a minute, of whether or not John Morant should be able <laughs> to make the All NBA teams even after not even really being in any discussion. Oh to no, make it that, that's 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 and that's season. ridiculous. By the way, totally ridiculous. He should not be an All NBA guy. I would love him to death, but we. I mean, we saw this. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but we saw this last year too. Like TJ Warren had a hot streak for ten yeah. games. You're not putting TJ Warren in the All NBA team because he scored you know thirty points you know like five times like in like a couple weeks. Um, I think the the comp for this is just like in terms of maybe not magnitude but just like similarity is probably that 07 Mavs series like the Mavs Warriors where this underdog Warriors team upsets the Mavs and here's Dirk Nowitzki in a suit his team's not playing he wins the MVP if there's a there's a universe in which that could happen like generally because I like Portland much better than Denver this series and it, it that it's not gonna be bad because it's a regular season award like we are rewarding regular season output he played the most games this season improvements on offense even though he was already probably a top five offensive player so you can't even imagine that like really aggressive score that he wasn't before but there is that possibility for sure that possibility for sure exists and it's all going to come down to games five six and seven but Giannis he kind of stands alone and I don't know if the voters would have actually given it to him three times in a row if not for a case like Jokic, who kind of has the outlier case where it's not just best team or best player on the best team. But Jokic actually deserves it this year. He's unguardable. If you send two guys at him, he and his teammates are a step ahead. He is getting better at shooting out of the high post. He now shoots like Dirk Nowitzki. And if he's making all of those shots, it's kind of game over because you can't really guard him with one unless your name is Anthony Davis. So that's where I am with Denver. Portland, I think, still wins this series and has the edge at this point. But let's go ahead and talk about Jazz Grizzlies. I, I want to get into that. So um, how do you think about Utah here? Because if anything, this series has taught me that there are some major red flags here for Utah as a contender. Yep. And I don't know if you want to get into them now or if you want me to just lay the whole rant at you and you see if you want to counter here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, totally. So I will first talk about the deficiencies of the Jazz before getting into what I have liked from the first few games. First off, I am struggling to understand what Quinn Snyder is doing when it comes to Mitchell's minutes. If he is actually hurt, then I'm not hearing anything about it. All I have heard from his camp is he's ready to go. He feels like he's 100%. He should be able to play close to 40 minutes if need be now fortunately that's not the case the jazz are actually five and oh this season when mitchell plays against the grizzlies and he's averaging 34 points and six assists in those games i don't anticipate the jazz actually lose another game in this series i still think it's jazz in five but the major red flags here are kind of a regression from the regular season the jazz may finish with the top two vote getters for sixth and seventh man of the year and we saw it in the bubble last year with the clippers that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot when you have lou will and trez coming off the bench ingles who have been kind of on fire until game three but had checked out completely when it came to guarding any kind of a kyle anderson off-ball move, or if they were to somehow... Or, or, or Dylan Brooks catching fire for 30 points tonight, apparently. I don't know what's going on with yes. him. 
yeah uh, so that obviously <laughs> that's kind of what we're daring Memphis to do because we don't think that they can do it every game but that's kind of a deficiency as well as Jordan Clarkson is now missing the same shots that he was making oh. pretty much nonstop throughout the entire regular season. He's doing and he's doing more than missing, by the way. He's doing a lot more than missing. <laughs> he's doing a, yes, he's doing a lot more than missing because he is still gonna take any and every open look that he is given, which is kind of the identity of our team. We take open looks and we've made them throughout the regular season. That's just the identity that we have built so far but Rudy looks great for the time that Mitchell is playing he has played like an all-star and bless be Mike Conley because I don't know if we win game three if he doesn't hit seven threes yeah so people might forget this but we actually are at least on paper kind of a super team we have three guys who made the all-star team, even if it doesn't feel that way. We have seven or eight guys who are all capable of going for 15-plus every night. We also have a team that has the two and soon-to-be three-time defensive player of the year, who, by the way, I would like to call out the people who think that he is just subject to a playoff regression every year. That's not the case this year. Oh, it, it, ask Jaron Jackson any form of playoff regression where he has kicked his butt every time. So, yeah, I, we can ignore the playoff regression on that one. So, yes, we can ignore the playoff regression on that one. Royce O'Neal shooting damn near 50%, I believe, for the series from three. I don't know if that's going to hold up, but I love the, his ability to burn guys when they close out on him. And he's hitting the open looks that he has had all year. If that's the case, then that's awesome because that's really the missing piece to our starting lineup and therefore the closing lineup as well. So Memphis, Memphis is not good enough to really make Boyan Bogdanovich a supreme negative defensively because it's really Morant and Brooks who are two smaller guys that – Boyan Bogdanovich is going to be able to guard more easily because Jaron Jackson Jr. is just not there yet. He's not Mikhail Bridges yet. He could be. Who knows? But he's not there yet. And I don't expect the Grizzlies will win another game in this series. But the Jazz have not looked strong by any means. So a lot to unpack there first. This has proved to me that I think I don't get me wrong. I think Utah's going to win this series probably in five games, maybe six if John Moran has a fifty-point outing, whatever. But it does prove what I've been diagnosing all along, where I think it's one of those cases where, out of all these teams and uh, who we thought were legit contenders, Utah's got the biggest uh, downside for a lot of reasons. First off, the they they've been so in their two wins in order to be in these games. They've had to shoot like lights out from three-pointer. Everyone besides Jordan Clarkson on that team is either at 35% or in some cases at the 45, 44% range. There's a couple limitations. So first off, outside of Mitchell and like your and like if Mike Conway if he keeps us up, even that, a lot of questions about offensive creation from your team. Like Jordan Clarkson right now is shooting 37% from the field and 14% from three. He has made 
three three-pointers so far out of 21 attempts for this series. He which is made a, one of them until late in the third quarter of Game 3. Yeah, so in other words, he's been super cold. And then you bring it up perfectly. So, like, the Jazz's system is beautifully pointed out. It's open look, you take it. But the problem is that half of your team just hasn't been in a big playoff game. Like, George Niang, you don't want shooting open three-pointers. So far, he's 4 of 12 on those. Jordan Clarkson, I just don't think you want him shooting all of these times if he can, he's going to miss uh, 70% of his shots. And then the other thing that I think is important is that Memphis is not a good offensive team, with all due respect. Like, I know they have a lot of young guys, a lot of versatility. But outside of Jaw and Dylan Brooks, their best offensive players are Jonas Valanciunas, which has been neglected by Rudy Gobert this whole series. Like For as much as people hated on Gobert for Game 1, he's been shut down this whole series. Jaron Jackson is an inconsistent three-point shooter. Kyle Anderson, who you want shooting 30 times a game because he's the most passive, docile human on the planet. And yet, and yet, I think it's concerning that Dylan Brooks is scoring 28 points this series. I, it really is concerning because this is a guy who has never put up this output before, and you guys aren't even facing a Kawhi or a LeBron or an anything. And that's what scares me even against going – I feel like – you guys will be favored, let's say, theoretically against Dallas. But who's guarding Luka on that team is a good question. Even against the Clippers, PG and Kawhi are going to go for 40 every night, with all due respect, because the Jazz don't have, outside of Royce O'Neal, that really good defensive big wing. Like, the if Dorian Finney-Smith or, like, Mikhail Bridges, you know, like, had steroids in them or something like that. They don't have it. And I really think men, uh, Utah's limitations here are definitely showing in this series so far. And obviously there's room for upside, but it's definitely showing. So, yes, we've kind of seen a trend in years past that has been the nail in the coffin for the Utah Jazz, which is their offense steps off a cliff in the postseason because it's just really Mitchell and nobody else. But that's not the case this year. Boylan Bogdanovich is healthy, finally. If Clarkson can get going, which we need him to, not even in this series probably, but in any other series for the remainder of the way because the way that we see it it's two down 14 to go championship is still our goal that should be anybody's goal who finishes with the best record in the nba but a couple of things that i'm keeping my eye on for the rest of this series not because i think that if we don't execute them we're going to lose this series i don't think that that scenario really exists at this point I want to see Mitchell put his foot on the gas pedal pretty much right away because even if he's only playing 28 minutes, he's still going to get close to about one point per minute threshold, which is basically what you want from a superstar scorer. He has been rather inefficient in terms of finishing at the rim. Jonas Valanciunas is not a great rim protector, that's not the case when you face teams, if we were to get there, say a Lakers in the conference finals, which I think would spell bad things for Mitchell because he is the exact kind of player that the Lakers shut down rather easily, which is a undersized guard who is going to be taken and given hell by Alex Caruso and then LeBron and AD switching on to him as well. So he needs to play like a superstar pretty much right from the get-go. We are at our best when we're playing with a lead, and we know that Memphis is never going to give up, and they are going to make their run in the third and or fourth quarter as well. So basically we need him to 
be a superstar right from the get-go to dictate and really let the other guys know this is what I'm going to do. I'm not letting us down. Then it's on you guys to come in and fill in those other pieces that we know that we have. But really, yes, to your point, what are the Jazz at their core? They're a 3 and D entire team, which when they hit from three, they win. When they miss from three, they lose. But we really are a small team. Outside of Gobert and Favors, and even Favors is pretty much Robert Williams, who we have coming off yeah, the Yeah, he's, he's a smaller, he's like he's one of the old school forwards who now plays center type thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, he was a four, and now he's playing five, which he's playing great so far to start this series. Even in game three, when Rudy picked up his second foul and had to come out of the game for extended periods of time, Favors is giving us good minutes, but... The Jazz don't really have a larger wing, to your point. I think missing out on Jay Crowder in the Jordan Clarkson trade... Oh, thank was... you. I, I miss Jay Crowder, too, so thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think that, yes, absolutely. I mean, going from Jay Crowder to Trevor Ariza is not really what any team wants at this point in both players' careers. I have a portrait of him and Mike in my room, just crying in front of him every night because I miss his 45% from three shooting. I miss it. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> right. So there is obviously that piece missing. Royce O'Neal is great for guarding guys like Steph Curry, who he is great and is super slippery on ball screens, but that's not really what the Grizzlies run because Dylan Brooks is not the guy bringing the ball up the floor. He's the guy moving without the basketball, and O'Neal has struggled to be able to navigate a lot of those actions that's pretty much what the Clippers run. Now, the Clippers have struggled against the Jazz in all six of their meetings since Kawhi and PG got there. I don't know if that really translates at all to a playoff series, but I would still like the Jazz chances in that series, be, be it because I think that the Jazz are going to have extra time to prepare and with games one and potentially seven at our building, that's a place where we have only lost three times this entire season with Mitchell playing. I think that we wrap up this series in five. We get some extra rest before watching game seven between the Clippers and Mavericks to decide who we play in the second round. I would like our chances with more rest. I would like our chances where we actually know who we're going to play for a couple of days when we are the ones resting versus the play-in game who we're watching this game and we're thinking, well, both of these teams are probably not super scary threats to win a series against us, are both teams that can try and do some things to tune us up for a team that can play the full 48. Yeah, obviously, and this will be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, I've, uh, before we move on, uh, 
Shout out to Mike Conway, uh, 23, 5, and 11 for this series. Absolutely insane. Uh, well, the good news, we've hit the 50... 50- percent from three on 8.7 yeah. pounds. Yeah, he's been ridiculous. So the good news is that we've hit the 50-minute marker, and we haven't even covered the Eastern Conference yet, which is awesome. So, But definitely a good episode so far. Let's move out east here. So I've actually got an episode coming out later this week. Uh, on the Miami Heat with a couple people back at home. So I don't want to uh, get depressed too much here. Give me my Miami Heat feel of why we suck this series and all that stuff before I talk about Milwaukee because uh, I'm going to save my ramble, obviously, for much later. So I just want to hear your opinion because uh, Jimmy Butler built enough bricks to build us a house where we can talk about, uh, have our meeting and talk about how they've been horrible this series. Well, first off, you can't expect to win a series against the Bucks if your best scorer probably can't really do anything and is being outscored by Bryn Forbes. So, so, so lesson number one that I've learned is that you can't win if your best scorer can't score. Really good point. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> yeah, as obvious as that sounds, that is the case, especially in today's league. And secondly, I picked the Bucks to actually win this series in five, so I wasn't super surprised when they actually came away with a sweep here. There is a massive difference between Eric Bledsoe and George Hill versus Drew Holiday and P.J. Tucker. Who you mean both... all-star Drew Holiday? <laughs> yes, all... that is exactly who I mean. He has played like Ugh. a real all-star this postseason so far, and the Bucks look like they actually have a big three per se as well. So moving to the Heat side of this discussion... Bam Adebayo has got to get better in terms of being able to facilitate out of the high post because the way that Brooke Lopez was playing off of him and really letting him step into whatever kind of shot he wants, that's not the formula for a Miami Heat win in this series. And the other thing is Tyler Hero is just not the same Tyler Hero that we saw in the bubble. I don't know if that's really anything that's going to change moving forward, but I can tell you that in hindsight, which is not even hindsight bias, for me, I was really on Pat Riley from the beginning, is what were the Miami Heat thinking when they said no to a James Harden trade because they would have to let go of Tyler Hero? Yeah, that that didn't age well. (laughs) So, that seriously did not age well. And Jimmy, as much as I love him and just the grit and hustle that he brings, his leadership can only go so far when he's not able to translate that into actual encore production. Because it's pretty much the same team from last year, minus Jay Crowder and Kelly Olinick coming off the bench to give you some other minutes. I don't know if the Miami Heat are going to be able to land Kawhi Leonard in the offseason. I don't even know if, you know, they call up the Cavs who are now offering Colin Sexton via trade. That would be that would be interesting. <laughs> that would be certainly interesting because he's kind of just the Victor Oladipo piece, which never came to be. Yeah. <laughs> but younger and better. So that's an interesting piece moving to the offseason. But in this series the Bucks were just the better team, and they had the best player on the floor. Even if he was, they had the they had the best four. They had the best four players on the floor. Forget best three. They had the best one. They had the best four. <laughs> yeah, 
throw in Brent Forbes. You can even <laughs> throw in Brooke Lopez, who was playing drop coverage the entire time, but the vaunted Miami Heat offense, which was really just not something that was sustainable. They were scoring almost 120 points a game over the final two weeks of the season. And going to the playoffs, there was the real question of, oh, if they can do this, they can actually hang with the team. But, who but we couldn't, we couldn't do it. We never could. That's the problem. We never could. So I'll get into this really quick. So just a couple things that I knew we were probably not going to win the series. And all due respect, the moment game one happened. When Milwaukee shot 5 of 30 from 3, and it took yeah. a Middleton buzzer beater to win the game. And we were down. Keep in mind, we were down basically this whole game for the most part. I knew that we were probably in trouble, especially with what happened in game two where the up- opposite happened and Milwaukee makes almost all of their shots. I'm like, well, it's over. Um, Bam and Jimmy uh, shooting over 115 times and making about 50 of their attempts is uh, horrible. They made, It was Bam shot 46% um, from the field, but it was one of those where like stats don't tell the whole story. He played terrible this series. Worst effort I've seen out of him. Brooke Lopez had a field day with, with this guy. Jimmy shot under 30% from three, or from, from the field, excuse me, from the field, which is horrible. Um, nobody on our team shot above... Uh, 46% besides Iguodala, uh, Dwayne Dedman, Gabe Vincent, and Precious Achulis. In other words, nobody shot above 46% from the field who played actual minutes. Uh, it was disappointing. And, I mean, I, I've been on this bandwagon the whole time. People hated me for it. I was always on, you have to get James Harden. There is, when you have a disgruntled superstar on a market... It doesn't matter what cost you get it. You get them at, you pay the premium price for that. Like, the Raptors, I think, is an all-time steal that they got Kawhi for DeRozan in a first-round pick when the Bucks had to give up four first-round picks for Drew Holiday. I just think that there are certain moments where you ride high on these types of things. Because, I mean, people are going to say Miami's finals run was a bubble asterisk or whatever. I, I disagree. I think Miami last year had a legit nine-man roster that was better and more complete than other teams. But with that said, though, some of this stuff was going to regress. Like Tyler Hero becoming, you know, Michael Jordan off the bench was not going to happen. He never showed it all year. You should have tra- put him in the Harden trade. It's just a matter of fact. And it definitely showed here. I don't want to ramble on forever because I think it was a big mistake on our parts c- just because of the disgruntled asset and just not pouncing on that. Especially because Brooklyn didn't give up much either. They gave up, you know a disgruntled asset of their own and a bunch of picks that aren't going to matter. You know, picks don't matter as much as they do, like, that they and do they back then. they held on to Spencer Dinwiddie, who will return next yeah. year. I want to move on to Milwaukee here. Do you – I know Brooklyn's been very good this series, in their series, and Philly's kicked Washington's ass. Um, how do you feel about Milwaukee as a contender? Because I've got them I, – I have it penciled in Philly just because I've, I've had them since the day one. I have a whole bet going. i got to keep on the Philly bandwagon. Mm. But if Milwaukee makes the finals, I wouldn't be surprised if they keep playing like this because they have a lot going for them right now. Yeah, I actually have the Milwaukee Bucks in the finals. Oh, oh yes. Before the playoffs. So this really doesn't shock me at all. I think that their strength really is the Nets' weakness, which I think that the Nets are going to close out their series. That's fair at this point. Milwaukee is a team that is going to dominate the glass. And even if it's not a series for Brooke Lopez... Giannis, to me, can be the best player on the floor in that series because the Nets are too small and don't have other ways of guarding the other pieces on Milwaukee. 
if you're really thinking that Chris Middleton is going to average about 20 points a game in that series, I'm sorry, you're wrong. It's going to be closer to 26 a game. And even if it's going to take that level of a scoring punch, because it's going to take close to 120 to beat the Brooklyn Nets, I don't see any reason why the Milwaukee Bucks can't do that. That was the Milwaukee Bucks average for this season. They averaged 120 points, and that was facing teams that actually had legit bigs that have any way of stopping Giannis in transition. So their ability to switch, even without Dante DiVincenzo, which is the real piece here that I think was able to be looked upon and looked past. I don't know if Pat Connaughton getting the start in game four is probably something that they can do in a series against the Brooklyn Nets, but this is really the time where Giannis starts to hit the open looks that he has been dared to shoot throughout his career. And Brooklyn just has to hope that he misses because they don't have any way of stopping him when he gets a full head of steam. They don't have any way of keeping Drew Holiday out of the lane because that was really the difference between this year and the other couple of years past for Milwaukee is they need another way to create shots and let Giannis play off the ball because letting him just clear out and then just go straight at the guy who's trying to guard him is something that works better when he's catching it at 15 feet versus trying to start that from 30 feet out. I like Milwaukee's chances in that series. I like them as the more rested team and the team that has actually played fairly well against Brooklyn this series and this season. Think about it. They have P.J. Tucker to guard James Harden. That's about as good as you could possibly ask for. Drew Holiday is a bad matchup, relatively speaking, for Kyrie Irving. And Giannis can do about as good of a job on Kevin Durant as any player on the planet can at this point. I like their ability to guard Brooklyn better than Brooklyn's ability to guard them. I think that it's Milwaukee in six. Yeah, that's going to be a fascinating series. Obviously, big picture-wise, this helps Philly a lot because one of these... Obviously, there's three contenders we could say out East. Two of them are going to eliminate each other before the Eastern Conference Finals. So in Philly's case, they kind of get to ride that a little bit. But I'm in agreement with you. I really like Milwaukee. I think they solved the issue. They solved a couple issues. They solved the what happens when our offense uh, takes a crap and there's nowhere to go with it. And I think getting the holiday guy as a ball handler, pick and roll player, just somebody who can... Having Giannis off the ball is scarier than having him on the ball, as crazy as that sounds, which is bad. Two, they solve the question of if there's five minutes left and the game is tied and you're in a game six, uh, down in a series or up in a series, what's the closing lineup? I think they've solved that uh, with having at least that big three and then surrounding with either Lopez if they want to go big, maybe Portis to go smaller, maybe put uh, now Divet Chen's up. I think Bryn Forbes might be that guy from now on, just as like that, you know, spacey three-point shooter who doesn't kill you on defense. They're a really good team this year. I think they had a vengeance this year that we didn't. They didn't have that hunger, that fight that they had last year, which I think they've got now, which is really nice. And they're very dangerous. They're they're one of these teams where when they get hot, you're stuck with either making Giannis score fifty points or letting you know Bryn Forbes, Chris Middleton drill you from three. And other than Lopez, there's no offensive deficiency. Um, on this roster and it really is showing and it showed with even a team like Miami who's got versatility and some guys they couldn't keep up with them which definitely sh- uh, definitely was shown in that series um, I want to focus here now to um, the other interesting series out east 
Uh, and that's just Nick's Hawks weird, bizarro, whatever the hell. Um, because there's a lot to unpack here. Um, some things that just stood out to me. Uh, nobody is shooting above 35% from three-point range except for Obi Toppin, who's taken uh, eight attempts, and Derrick Rose, who's absolutely nuclear right now. Uh, Julius Randle has shot 70 times and has made uh, 27% of his looks. And out of those 70 looks, 24 of them have been three-pointers, which is the major red flag of the century right now. Um, what are some things that stood out for you? Because I actually really like this matchup. I, my favorite is the Knicks fans chanting Brooklyn in four, or we want Brooklyn or whatever, and they can't even be uh, a Trey Young Hawks team. Well, that is a significant problem. The other significant problem with the Knicks is even if Julius Randle is not hitting his shots, why are you not inviting Trey Young into the action every oh, time? Oh, yes. Why? They're letting Trey Young stand in the corner on Reggie Bullock. Yes. Why is Reggie yes, Bullock not are. setting picks to get Trey Young on Julius Randle? <laughs> so they're not doing their best ways to be able to put Derrick Rose on Trey Young, put Julius Randle on Trey Young. Even off the bench, you're letting Emmanuel quickly and R.J. Barrett get guarded guys like Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter, and even Bogdan Bogdanovich, who started off the series pretty hot and has since cooled off somewhat. I didn't expect this from the Knicks. I didn't expect... Oh, no, I expected it from the Knicks. They had to ruin this run. Like, it, with all due respect, like, I knew this was going to happen. I hate when people keep riding this, like, wave that, like, they're, the, they're back. I'm like, no, they're not. Like, for as good as they were... They're, 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 I'm saying this right now. I'm putting my flag on. They're a major regression candidate next year. If they don't land any major superstar or get a second person, they're a candidate to go from a, an above 500 team to a below 500 team because they're relying so much on Julius Randle, who's never been a good player, like never been like this type of player ever before. Um, they're relying on a lot of hot shooting from guys who are not capable. And they're relying upon this defense that gives up the most three-pointers and paint shots. Like, you can't run an off uh, defense where you're giving up the most amount of three-pointers in the league and the most amount of layups in the league. You just can't. And it's definitely showing here where I knew Atlanta this whole time was going to win because you're just going to outshoot New York. Like, New the only way New York can win is if you saw with, like, that game two where they hold Atlanta under 110, they score just enough. They relied on Alex. Yeah. Like, Alex Burks had to score, you know, almost 30 points for them to have a chance. When Alex Burks has to do that for you, you have a problem. That's a significant problem, and they have a lot of different guards. The problem is, is R.J. Barrett is not a star yet. I think that he probably can, and the jury is still out on that one. But Julius Randle cannot be your offensive number one. That's number one. I don't even think he's he can be your number. I don't even think he can be your number two. I think that's the thing. I think he's just a regular season player who just has like the right system. I've never been a huge Julius Randle guy, even if he gets, you know, there was the fact that he was getting MVP talk with like the fifth. I'm like, he's not deserve MVP. That's ridiculous. No, he's basically the Pascal Siakam of this year. And when it comes to a guy that has significant playoff regression, is not able to really go to any move besides shooting a jab step three that he's made 40% of this season, credit to him. That's not really going to work in the playoffs because other teams understand your weaknesses and they're going to do everything that they can to magnify them. If the Knicks are able to get back into this series, which I don't think that they will at this point, I really thought that this series was going to go seven. And I really thought that they were going to be bludgeon Trey Young every time that they can. You cannot let 
the player who has a reputation as being the worst defender in the league be a net zero defensively because you're letting him stand in the corner, not exert any energy. And he's the same guy who is getting whatever kind of look that he wants for himself as well as his teammates because you're not doing anything in the kind of the pick and roll actions that have really dominated the entire season for you. You've been great at defending. I think having a complete zero offensively for the Knicks at the center position is something that has got to change. I don't know what the missing piece is for the Knicks. If it's a go-to scorer, if it's another front court player to fortify your wings, like if Kawhi Leonard would be the answer, which I don't think they have a shot at getting at this point, they need to get a starting center in the league that is not only good defensively like Nerlens, who is really a starting center who should be playing backup minutes. And Taj Gibson is not at the point of his career where he's any kind of a scoring threat at all. They need another lob and rim finishing big, sort of like a Gobert, even if you're not able to get a player on that level. They don't have any ways to really score 110 points, which if they were to somehow come back from 3-1 down, you're going to have to probably score that much in order to beat Philly. Yeah, and I think this is similar to that Denver-Portland matchup. It's, this is the winner of the lose second round matchup just because they've got no shot. Like Even Atlanta, I, I'm just still angry at the whole Knicks thing because I think they botched this entirely. There was a world in which they could have won this series, and they blew it. They really did like mess up here. Like The amount of times I've seen Trey Young standing in the corner for 20 seconds with no action whatsoever directed toward him is ridiculous. And the amount of times I've seen... These weird offensive sets where it's like Alex Burks ISO at the top of the key over a wing. I'm like, no switch. No, we're just going to let Alex Burks cook here. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. And then all these times they've not been, they've, I, I credit Tibbs for at least doing the Alfred Payton a favor of not playing him. It's, it's a miracle what happens when you play uh, three non-shooting guards instead of four. However, though, I discredit him for using Randall the wrong way here. I don't know why Randall is taking jumper after jumper after jumper. No pick and roll. No spacing whatsoever. They're putting him in terrible position. And then, obviously, if you're the Hawks, you win with the you win with the kind of the Jazz formula. Uh, uh, frisky defense and a lot of three-point shooting. And they've made their three-point shots this season. And in this playoffs in particular. And it's definitely showing. Um, I wanted to talk about Philly here for a little bit because it's our last... Uh, uh, I don't want to focus too much on Brooklyn, Boston. I think that's a uh, for Boston fans out there who listen to this pod. They're not. They don't want to hear it uh, again because they they're gonna get it. Um, what are your thoughts on both Philly and Brooklyn as contenders uh, in the grand scheme of things? Because obviously Brooklyn, I still have a lot of questions about. I think they're playing a very easy Celtics team. I think this is one of those things where the fact that they're they're these games are close, even though Tatum is the only guy who can score on Boston, is kind of frightening. Uh, whereas Philly, I think Philly's playing pretty decent we outside of that game one they've really done a good job this series so what are your thoughts on both those teams so we don't have to talk much about the philly and washington series i didn't give washington any kind of a chance (laughs) for the series because we knew that there would be some playoff regression from russ uh oh you you thought there's gonna be playoff regression from russ Wow, yeah, it's almost as if that happens every year. He he's shooting like I want to. I gotta pull it up. It's got to be like thirty nine percent from the field. There's no way 
he's doing like he's on here. I got it right here. He's shooting 40% from the field, 27% from three. So in other words, it is a normal playoff uh, year for Russell Westbrook. Yeah. So there is some playoff regression there from his regular season numbers. And Washington just isn't big enough to deal with Philly. Philly is throwing lineups out there with three guys who are six, nine or taller with Harris Simmons and Embiid. And there are some times where Washington's biggest player on the floor is Daniel Gafford. So I, that's really not going to work. Bradley Beal, it's pretty much him versus the entire Philadelphia 76ers team. And Philly is fine, even if he scores 35, because they have no way of stopping Embiid. The Sixers are going to get to the rim any and every time, and it's either that or it's Danny Green or Seth Curry shooting open threes. And you just can't beat Philly if you can't take away anything. That's what Washington has not been able to do, but I don't think that anybody expected them to. So Washington's lineup out. So Beal and Westbrook, Beal's playing 38 minutes, Westbrook 35. Um, the rest of your lineup for Washington, you have Rui Hachimura with 30 minutes a game, so already off to a great start there. Uh, Davis Bertans, who has not made a three-pointer in about four years, um, he is currently at 28 minutes. Ish Smith, Daniel Gafford, Raul Nato, Alex Len, and Robin Lopez is the rest of your rotation. So if you have that rotation going up against Embiid, who's putting up the uh, quietest 30 points a game, Tobias Harris is putting up the quietest 25 points a game, Ben Simmons is averaging a triple-double practically this series, and Seth Curry and Danny Green have made every three-pointer they've taken. I could see why uh, Washington is, like, maybe going to get swept here. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that they will get swept. I had the Sixers in five before the series, so that was another one that I didn't expect to be close at all. When it comes to your question, though, of who I would trust more, Brooklyn or Philly, I like the winner of this 76ers and, or excuse me, I like the winner of the Milwaukee Bucks and Brooklyn Nets second round series, which will happen at this point, to win the Eastern Conference. And if the Lakers are not healthy, I think that the winner of that series should be at that point considered the favorite to win it all. And the reason that I think that the floor to me still does not work when you face a team that has any kind of a paint resistance. And give Brooklyn as much flack as you want for them not playing any defense. The Sixers are not as well built as the Bucks in order to be able to actually match up and defend in space against Brooklyn because Brooklyn is going to be able to pull Embiid away from the, away from the basket. Ben Simmons can only guard one guy at a time. And the 76ers don't really have any way to keep their hands up and move with Kevin Durant. I know that Ben Simmons is supposedly the best on-ball defender in the NBA at this point, but that has not even been the case during this playoff series. He hasn't been the best defender on his own team. Unless Matisse Thibel is able to really make the Nets pay because they don't play any defense, I like the Nets' ability to be able to win high-scoring games against the Philadelphia 76ers. And Milwaukee is the team that has owned the Sixers more than any team in the league this season. We have seen Giannis's ability to really sun Joel Embiid at times. 
and I would like the winner of that series to win the Eastern Conference. Yeah, that's definitely a hot take. I kind of agree there. My, I, I've been, as you, I pointed out, a huge fan of Milwaukee, and I think Brooklyn, for all the questions, they still have three really good offensive creators, so I won't spend too much time on that. They scored 104 points between the three of them yesterday. Yeah, just alone, not including you know Joe Harris and some of those guys. So just one last question here before we bet. We're at a minute and 15, or an hour and 15, so definitely we really did a good job breaking down each series. Um, what are you looking forward to for the rest of this week? Obviously, you have a big game tonight for Utah where they've got to hopefully go up 3-1. We've got, obviously, those Suns, Lakers, uh, all those Western Conference series that are tied 2-2. And then you obviously have uh, things starting to finally come out uh, normally out east. So what are you looking forward to for like this like uh, couple days or so, especially this little stretch right here? So, yes, to your point, I wanted a game 4 win, and I think that the Jazz would wrap up the series in game 5 at home. So I think that that will be 4-1 Jazz by the end of the series. That would make the Jazz 7-0 and this season against the Grizzlies, one spite up plays. And I am looking forward to really the rest of the Lakers-Suns series because that's the one to me that is really going to dictate everything that happens in the second round. And the winner of that series will be playing in the conference finals. I don't have much trust in the Nuggets or the Blazers past round one anyway. So we touched on that. Then in the Eastern Conference, I want to see what kind of a time gap in terms of scheduling the league gives the Brooklyn Nets after the end of what should be their game five win when they wrap up their series before a series against the Bucks starts, because I think that the more and more time that the league allows for the Bucks to rest actually could hurt them. I was going to say, I kind of like Brooklyn getting in a groove and Milwaukee trying to like, you know, keep the fire going, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that would be a groove where the Nets are actually the ones hosting that series because they actually won their final few games of the regular season when they needed to, and Milwaukee finished a game behind them. I think that series would be a bloodbath, and I'm going to stick with the Bucks in six when they close it out at home. But I think that the more and more time that you let shooters like Bryn Forbes and Chris Middleton not really see the ball go through the hoop in a game setting can actually spell some kind of a doom for them in a game one, as well as Brooklyn being just a far better team when they play at home versus on the road. I would like to see what the NBA does in terms of scheduling because they could make it so there's two days of rest if they were to play tomorrow night in game five and then you give them two days of rest and then they're playing again on Friday night. Or if they're not playing again until next Sunday, that's a lot of time off for the Milwaukee Bucks. And normally that's a good thing. But when your formula was to score just barely enough and shoot the lights out of the ball, I don't know if that works against Brooklyn. Yeah, obviously these developments will play out. We got a couple of key games tonight. Obviously Philly can close it out against Washington. Um, in that series, which will hopefully, hopefully they will, I think, uh, for Bradley Beal's sake, they will. And then obviously this key game with Utah and Memphis. I, I've always, I've loved that series. It's got potential just if, like, it goes to six games or so. I'm going to put it up there as, like, one of my rewatchables just for the future. Uh, but, Micah, thank you so much for joining the pod. We are at an hour 20 almost in terms of NBA coverage. So really did a good job breaking down every series. 
Um, there's a reason why you've been on four, four times now. Uh, definitely would like to have you closer to hopefully the uh, end of the conference semifinals, maybe conference finals, because obviously a lot to break down there, especially as some of these awards start coming out, anything crazy with next year, all that sort of stuff. But thank you so much for joining the pod. Thank you. It's always a pleasure of mine to join you. All right, and then as I put out earlier, new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, this one obviously will be coming out. Uh, uh, obviously, will be coming out, but we have more along the way for hopefully the next couple of weeks as the NBA playoffs go, go underway. But thank you guys so much, and have a great rest of your day.